0: CHAPTER Five OF MARTIN LUTHER BY CARL E. KOPPENHAVER This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. LUTHER EXPLAINS HIMSELF THE CHRISTIAN NOBILITY Luther's attempts to interest the Pope in reform had proved futile. HE WAS LIKEWISE UNSUCCESSFUL IN HAVING A GENERAL COUNCIL CONVENED TO CONSIDER HIS PROPOSITIONS. NOW, IN THE FIRST OF THREE GREAT TREATISES, HE CALLED UPON THE SECULAR RULERS TO CONCERN THEMSELVES WITH THE STATE OF THE CHURCH. APPEARING IN AUGUST 1520, THE OPEN LETTER TO THE CHRISTIAN NOBILITY OF THE GERMAN NATION FLATLY ATTACKED CORRUPTION AMONG THE CLERGY, and prodded laity into doing something about it. Since all Christians are priests before God, Luther held it was incumbent upon them, and particularly upon Christian rulers, to feel responsible for the conduct of the church within their domains. As Christians, they should abhor vice and wickedness, regardless of whether it flourished on the main street or in the monastery. No one, said the open letter, has been able to reform the Romanists because they have erected three walls of defense. First, when pressed by the temporal power, they have made decrees and said that the temporal power has no jurisdiction over them. Second, when the attempt is made to reprove them out of the scriptures, they raise the objection that the interpretation of the scriptures belongs to no one except the Pope. Third, if threatened with a council, they answer with the fable that no one can call a council but the Pope. Luther demolished the first wall by showing that everyone is equal before God. Those holding the title of priest or bishop are not superior to other Christians, nor do they differ except in vocation, by which also a cobbler differs from a blacksmith. The title of priest is conferred by laymen, who themselves are priests in the sight of God. Thus the holder of a church title is not beyond the reach of temporal government. He breached the second wall by pointing out that every enlightened Christian, layman or priest, has the right to seek God's message for him in the scriptures. The third wall tumbled through Luther's insistence that every man as a priest shares responsibility for right management in the church. The Babylonian Captivity Before his letter to the nobility was off the press, Luther was writing his second treatise, The Babylonian Captivity of the Church. The first had been primarily for lay people, while the second was for theologians. It aimed directly at freeing the Christian fellowship in Europe from the captivity of the Roman sacramental system. The Roman Church taught that it alone could dispense the saving grace associated with the sacraments, and that the sacramental acts could be performed only by ordained priests. Anyone who denied that the church controlled the flow of grace from God was striking Catholicism in its most vital spot. Without its sacramental system, Rome could no longer bind its subjects. This was the front at which Luther aimed his heaviest artillery. He reiterated his views on the priesthood of believers. Priests should be servants of the people who comprise the church, rather than servants of a papal hierarchy. They cannot interfere with grace. It is God's free gift to the individual believer. In the course of his treatise, Luther also asserted that there are only two sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, rather than seven as taught in Roman Catholicism. A sacrament, he held, had to be instituted by Christ, contain a divine promise of the forgiveness of sins, and make use of an earthly element, water, bread, wine. Confirmation, ordination, marriage, penance, and extreme unction were rejected as sacraments because they lacked some of the prescribed characteristics. The Mass had been seen as a repetition of Christ's incarnation and crucifixion, at the hands of a priest before the altar. By this sacrifice man tried to earn grace. Now it became the Lord's Supper, a communion of the believing Christian with his Savior. Both the bread and the wine should be received by the communicant, Luther insisted. While Christ is really present in the elements, the bread does not become flesh, nor the wine blood through a magical act called transubstantiation. Moreover, Christ is not sacrificed anew whenever the Mass is celebrated. His sacrifice on the cross was for all time. Through that sacrifice a man's sins are remitted if he has faith. Christian Liberty Miltitz, the papal nuncio, who previously had failed to reconcile Luther and the Pope, tried again in October 1520. He had Luther agree to write a letter to Leo X, assuring him that there was nothing personal in his attacks on the papacy. In the letter, Luther cautioned Leo against listening to those of his advisers who would make him a demigod, who put him above councils who make him the final authority in interpreting Scripture, for through them Satan already has made much headway. He also assured Leo that he was an obedient servant of the church and that he was not inveighing against him personally. Accompanying the letter was a copy of Luther's latest pamphlet, a treatise on Christian liberty. It expresses calm Christian reflection, quite different from the theological conflicts which were carried forward in his other treatises. At the outset it poses two propositions which seem to be a paradox. A Christian man is a perfectly free lord of all, subject to none, and a Christian man is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. The first proposition acknowledges man as a sinner, but one who has been liberated and restored to a right relationship with God through justifying grace. In justifying man, God has freed him from the consequence of his sins because of Christ's atonement. This freedom affects a man's whole life. Not only is he free from the consequences of sin, but he is no longer shackled by his own hates, passions, and willful desires. Because this freedom is based upon his own personal relationship with God, no one can interfere. He is subject to none. The second proposition indicates that the free man's life takes a different direction. Originally he was concerned with himself, but now the reborn person, in gratitude for his own freedom, serves his neighbor. His motive is not merely humanitarian, but stems out of a sincere desire to help others become free, too. Love permits him to do no less than become the servant of all. The treatise and letter would have scant effect upon Pope Leo. Five months previously, he had signed a bull excommunicating Luther. THE PAPAL BULL A chronological listing of events can be misleading, for instance, those concerning the papal bull. It was signed by Leo on June 15, 1520. It reached Luther officially on October tenth. He immediately wrote a fiery epistle denouncing it and Eck, whose style and invective he recognized. Aware that the bull was being circulated, and that his literature was being burned, he nevertheless sat down in November and wrote a friendly letter to the Pope, accompanying it with his treatise on Christian liberty. On the surface this would indicate insincerity, but events shaped up to prove he was being consistent. Although he knew he had personal enemies, he never lost sight of the fact that he was fighting a system rather than individuals the pope for him was merely a figurehead in this instance the symbol of an intolerable autocracy in an area where individual freedom before god was essential the papal bull credited luther with forty-one errors called for the burning of his books charged heresy gave him sixty days to submit and warned everyone against sheltering him in his excommunication. Distribution of the bull was in the hands of Eck and papal legate Jeremy Aleander. They succeeded in posting copies of the bull and burning books in several cities, but largely their efforts were unsuccessful due to strenuous opposition by the German people. On December 10th, probably in reprisal for a book-burning at Cologne, Melanchthon posted a notice on the Wittenberg University Bulletin Board inviting students and faculty to a bonfire outside the Elster Gate of the city. Books on scholastic theology, and especially those works of canon law on which the Pope and the Roman hierarchy based their claims to power, were tossed into the flames. Then Luther stepped forward quietly and with a prayer on his lips added the booklet containing the papal bull to the fire. He and the professors withdrew, but the students made a holiday of the affair, parading and singing throughout the town and burning books of Luther's opponents. Significantly, the bonfire marked the end of the sixty-day period of grace. From now on, No one was to communicate with Luther or provide him with the necessities of life. In the eyes of Rome, he was an outlaw. End of chapter 5